Cousins fires over the middle and it's intercepted at the 40-yard line by Richard Sherman. Flag on the play. There's a flag down at the 24-yard line. All right, I guess we're going to do this now. It is 4.30 a.m. in Buffalo, New York. And welcome to Season 9, Episode number 23 of the Sportscasters. Now, it's been a long, strange, crazy trip since we last talked back at the end of November of 2019. And my plan at that point was to do one or two more shows, finish off Season 9 back in 2019. Start Season 10 right around now in 2020. And I even recorded two interviews, which you'll hear on this show, uh, back in early December of 2019. One with Greg Sherman uh, from Sherman Report. And of course, his name is Ed, not Greg. I don't know where Greg came from. Ed Sherman from Sherman Report. I guess I'm I'm a little, uh, what would the word be, rusty. And one with Rob Mish, who is a longtime friend of the show and, of course, is the author of The Last Natural and was promoting a book as part of the book club about sports betting. I recorded those interviews and I planned on, you know, recording One Last Thing and all this other stuff and putting it out as the season finale. And what happened is I had an equipment failure. Uh, And my computer, which started with me and started with this podcast way back on January 11th, uh, 2011, uh, was Dunsky. So it took a lot of recovery work and getting a new computer and kind of getting myself back. Uh, And then once that happened, I had planned on recording and a couple of things got in the way. I didn't quite get to it. Then the Saints loss happened and I kind of just didn't want to do it for a few days. And then finally, I recorded an interview a couple days ago with Andrew Marchand from the New York Post, uh, which will air as season 10, episode one, the season finale or season premiere, I guess, of season 10. Uh, That episode will will air hopefully later in the week. And I said, boy, I got to get this up. Now, first of all, I have to apologize to Ed and to Rob, because of course we we recorded those interviews with the intention of them going up and promoting their books as part of uh, the Christmas rush, right? Sell Ed's Big Ten book as part of Christmas gifts, and Rob's book as part of Christmas gifts, and unfortunately because of my status as a, you know, just an independent and an imbecile, when shit breaks down, I don't have a backup. Uh, so it took time for me to get everything replaced and repaired and restored and all that. Now, I'm still having a problem on SoundCloud, and I have no idea what to do. If you know anything about this, let me know. But on SoundCloud, I have episodes that are just kind of disappearing. They're just going to private sort of automatically. And then if I go to my feed and I just kind of switch them to private and then back to public, they reappear. That's happened twice. I don't know what to do about that. I may have to switch all these podcasts over to a different host I don't know, but I wanted to at least try to get this up, and I wanted to do it all day Saturday, and for whatever reason, I didn't, and then I'm up all night, and it's Sunday at 4.30, and I was screwing around with the RSS feed again, and I'm like, you know what? Screw it. Let me just record this stuff. Maybe I'll get this one up, 
and then maybe your Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday I can get the season premiere up because on Friday I'm having surgery. It'll be my third surgery in 289 days, and I probably will need a little bit of time away from the podcast for that to happen. Now, I've been going through, recently I've been going through some older interviews. You know, when you get into season 10, there's over 300 episodes of this show. We probably averaged two interviews a show. I mean, we're talking about 600 interviews. Uh, And I was just wondering, should I be replaying some of them? I listened to one I did in 2014 with Bob McKenzie, and it was sort of fascinating. And I thought, man, I wonder if I should replay this. So one thing I might do as part of season 10 is, and it will help get more episodes out too, because I don't have to book as much, is maybe putting as the second interview, maybe every other show or something like that, a classic sportscaster's interview, uh, and seeing what those sound like and what the feedback might be on that. So that's an idea. Uh, But a lot has happened since we talked last, of course. The whole month of December happened. Christmas happened. uh, New Year's happened. The Saints lost, which was hideous. I wasn't a fan of that. And, um, man, what else? I I did have a great Christmas. I had a great time with my family. Paul was amazing. And one last thing today, I'm going to tell the story of a picture of a picture. Uh, I'll tell you more about that in one last thing. I didn't read much, though. I did get some books. I got Curveball uh, by Barry Zito. And I got an unofficial, unauthorized Howard St- a book about Howard Stern uh, from back in 1996, which I'm excited to read because it's supposed to be, you know, the real story of Stern and what he was like in the uh, K-Rock days. So I'm excited to read that. So let's say this. This is the plan for right now. So this is going to go up. It's going to go up as the Season 9, Episode 23, the finale of Season 9. Ed Sherman is going to be our first guest. We'll do a quick quick book club update, which is almost going to be a non-update. There's not much going on there. And then the Rob Mish interview. I'll do one last thing about a picture of a picture. And then that'll be it for Season 9. Later in the week, uh, hopefully, if all goes well. And you know what? No matter what, I'll get one up before surgery because even if I don't book a second interview... I'll start the classic interview thing. Uh, But Andrew Marchant from the New York Post will make his debut in the season 10 season premiere. So with all that said, I think let's take a break. I need to take a breath. I don't know if I plan on doing this at 4.30 a.m., but I am anyway. I got this far, right? So let's take a break. We'll come back. Sherman Report was one of the first websites to ever pick up on the sportscasters and say it was any good. Uh, The first time I I think I heard anyone say, wow, this podcast is good, it was from Ed Sherman on the Sherman Report. And he wrote an unbelievable coffee table book about the history of the Big Ten. And again, I apologize to Ed that this didn't go up in time for it to be a Christmas gift, but there's no reason if you're interested you couldn't still buy it now. Uh, It sells on fanatics.com through bigtenbook.com. Uh, there's more details in that. Again, I recorded this like the last week in November or early December. So if something, I know in the Rob Mish interview later, we do talk about the Saints and how their playoff run will be. We get into that a little bit. So maybe some of that is dated. But for the most part, it's just interviews about books that uh, didn't go stale. So they should be fine. Um, and again, I apologize to these guys. But let's do it. Let's finish up. Seasons uh, number nine, we got two interviews left. Let's get rid of the first one first. We'll take a break, and we'll be right back with Ed Sherman. (laughs) 
right, our first guest today is a product of the Big Ten. He worked for a long time for the Chicago Tribune. He invented the website, The Sherman Report, and he's written an amazing book about the history of the Big Ten. A warm sportscaster's welcome to our friend, Ed Sherman. What's going on, Ed? How are you doing today? Everything's great. Good to talk to you. Always fun. We go way back now. It's been a few years. Oh, it's been years now. Yeah, it's been years. What year did you start the website, the Sherman Report website? Do you remember what uh, year? Two thousand twelve. Okay, so yes, two thousand twelve. Seven years. Yeah, yeah, it's a long time. So that's how far we go back. And I haven't done the website since two thousand sixteen. But um, but that kind of gave me an entree to meet people like you and other people in sports media, and it, um, and uh, you know gave me the entree to kind of do a lot of other different things. So it was a good experience, and kind of was time to do something else when I shut it down. But I'm glad I did it. How are you guys still taking care of Patrick Kane, even though you're not winning any hockey games anymore? You still love him, right? Pretty bad. Yeah. They just beat the Bruins last night. So yeah, I saw kind of that. Overtime, Jonathan I don't Taves think anyone won. expected that. Right. But the Bruins hadn't won and hadn't lost since, like, since sometime in November. So that was kind of a big upset. Yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of, it's been interesting that uh, I went to a game a few weeks ago against the Flyers. It might have been the worst Hawks game I've ever seen. So. I mean, they just did literally nothing. I think they had one shot and goal in the second period. You know, well, it was really bad. I think in the salary yeah. cap era of the league, you're kind of seeing the price you have to pay to win three Stanley Cups. Win. Yeah. You know, Maybe. like. But you, you also have to hit on some of the young players. Right. Boston still, you know, I mean, Boston hasn't won three Stanley Cups, but they've been competitive going to finals and True. stuff. And um, they've carried that for a long time. So. They just haven't yeah, had they, to they pay haven't the really, top they on have, talent. They haven't never, and they have not hit on some of their young players. Right. And uh, that's, you know, and their old guys got old. What percentage of Standard the salary the, cap is Kane, Taves, and the two defensemen? Right? I lot. mean, Yeah, I mean, that's the problem right there, I think. And then, like you said, you don't if you don't hit on every young player, you know, right. you're dead. Uh, I think the Sabres killed them on a, on a trade, too, where we – a draft pick that the Sabres absolutely didn't hit on uh, in Nylander – uh, for Yokoharu, who looks like a really good defenseman, um, even yeah. if even if Yokoharu is only average, at least he plays. Uh, Nylander just could never even play here, and it wasn't a good club here while he was here. It's still not a good club, but I mean, he couldn't even get on the ice. He's just so soft yeah. and thin. And I know the Hawks gave him every opportunity earlier in the year, playing with on the top line with Kane and to brink it for a while. But yeah, that's more. You're, that's that's way more hockey analysis than I'm probably. <laughs> capable of talking about. Do you even know who but, Nylander is? I mean, that's my point, I guess. Yeah, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, like, that's kind of my point. Yeah. He's been there, what, yeah. four months now, and, like, who the hell is Nylander? Yeah. He's just some bum, really. Right. You know, so that's right, right. kind of my point. Um, so you spent the last couple years, I assume, on this book. We're, let's transition the book a little bit. I know that was Yeah, so, that, so the book is on, you know, the, um, it's a history book of the Big Ten. This is big, how the Big Ten set the standard in college sports, and that's a just to give you the basics. It's a, it's a coffee table style book, 352 pages. It's heavy. It's five pounds. It's very you know it's a big book. Everyone's kind of been saying, and um, and there's 352 pages, uh, 80,000 words of type, more than 300 pages, 300 photos. Um, so. It's, um, yeah, it's something, you know, kind of tells the story of the Big Ten through words and photos. And it's something that uh, someone, as a child of the Big Ten, someone who grew up going to Northwestern games 50 years ago and went to Illinois and then covered 
the conference in the late 80s through the 90s, coinciding with the time when Jim Delaney first took over as commissioner and kind of kept up those relationships. I just wanted to, I had been interested in doing a book for a while. There hadn't been a real comprehensive book. I've written on the Big Ten in a number of years. And I just went to them and said, hey, you know, what do you guys think? And they were all in, more than all in. I mean, they really, I was, I've been telling people, I've been overwhelmed by the, uh, the cooperation and the enthusiasm and the willingness to really make this project a success by all the people in the Big Ten. I mean, it just, it continue, it's still continuing. Let me ask you about the book for a second, uh, the physical being of it, because I got a package in the mail like a month or two ago. And I kind of thought actually it was going to be your book, to be honest, because we had kind of touched yeah. base and talked about it. Right, right. And it was actually another book by a guy named Mark Beach um, called The People's Team, An Illustrated History of the Green right. Packers. I don't know if you've seen this or not. Right. Um, uh, yeah, I think so. But it's similarly a big, heavy, beautifully illustrated coffee table book. Um, then a couple weeks after that, I got a package in the mail. Um, which again, I thought might be your book. And it was a yeah. similar thing by a guy who had done a coffee table book about general managers in hockey called 23. Um, that mm. is about the 23 wins or 23 players on an NHL roster, excuse me. Um, and I'm just thinking to myself, like, is there a reason, and maybe you know this or not, and maybe I'm just projecting because I got a few in the mail. But is there a reason why this kind of book is maybe in style right now? Is there, is there something I mean, about you know, these kind of books? A, it might be, it might be a little bit of a coincidence. But, okay. Um, you know, but I think that there is, you know, I mean, obviously with the, the NFL turning a hundred, there's been some. I've seen some books about that. Um, probably a coincidence, but I think that there's still. I'm hoping that there's still a market for kind of these, you know, books that you, that you give as gifts that you put on the coffee table. Right. That, um, I mean, you've seen the cover and I've got a book out to you. It's, yeah. Um, I look through um, it. but Beautiful. it's really, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a really, I mean, I don't I'm trying I'm not responsible for it. My, I had a great designer and he really did a beautiful a job designing a beautiful cover and a beautiful layout inside the book with all these great photos that we were able to get through the schools. I mean, we, Initially, we're planning and doing a 256-page book, and we kept seeing all these great photos. And I said, "We got to use these photos." In fact, we got to blow out these photos. And so we went up to 352 pages, and um, because in part the photos do kind of tell the story, help tell the story of of kind of the what it feels like to be in the Big Ten, to be a fan, to be a an athlete to be um, in the band. We have a section on bands. We have a section on cheerleaders and mascots. And, you know, and you think, and, and you see these photos, they're so striking that, you know, you'll see why exactly why we had to use them. And um, <clears throat> kind of use those. We did these photo montages to kind of break up the sections. And so, you know, I, I, and so that's, you know, why we did it, use those photos. But I didn't want it just to be a, I also wanted it to be more than just a coffee table book where people look at photos and and um, maybe read some short captions on you know uh, on on you know to go with those photos. I mean, I did I did want it to be a book where there's storytelling. I didn't want it to be like a Wikipedia type book. I want to try to tell the story of a lot of these different things, athletes, coaches, and also things that kind of shaped the Big Ten. Um, what made the Big Ten the Big Ten? So. 
so there's a lot of good stuff I hope people will read in there um, and um, and uh, and also enjoy the photos and you know and I, as I said <clears throat> you know as I've been saying it's the holidays if you're looking for a gift for a sports fan uh, you know I'm one click away at uh, at big ten book.com yeah. where you can get the book right now the um how early in the process did you make the decision to go the coffee table route was that a real early decision oh, that was i think that was real that was really early yeah, yeah. we were going to do that yeah you know i think it just lends itself to do that i was kind of you know i was as i said i was planning on doing a, a shorter book but we got all these photos and so we added you know literally almost 100 pages to the book to kind of maximize these photos and also to tell more stories um, I do a, the front section of the book kind of is really kind of how the big 10 became the big 10. And I look at different, um, different, um, events, um, things that happened, things that influenced it. And Jim Delaney just kind of gives his overview, gives his comments, analyzing it. And also for the last 30 years, he tells what kind of the behind the scenes of what happened, right. um, including, you know, the addition of Penn State, do a whole section on the addition of Penn State, because that was a, not only a huge um, acquisition for the Big Ten, it was huge for all of college sports. It was the first domino that fell in this whole massive realignment. I mean, this, it's like in 1990, the whole map of college sports has changed, you know, dramatically since then. And it was because of this addition of Penn State. I remember and when that happened. That story. I remember when that happened. At the time, you can correct me if I'm wrong on this. Was there rumor that maybe Notre Dame would be a part of that too? Well, there was always always that rumor. There was right? always rumors, yeah. but no one. But when that happened, it came. So we broke the story about it in the, trib, the Chicago Tribune, and it was so far out of left field. I mean, it was as I've been saying, it was three counties beyond left field. I mean, nobody even saw that coming. It wasn't one iota of speculation. We got a tip on it that this was happening. And and we wrote it, <clears throat> and if and and I write in the book, it almost didn't happen even after we announced it because there was such a backlash from the athletic directors about not being consulted, about thinking this wasn't the right move, and um, and uh, and it just really only passed by the president's uh, vote of seven to three. You know that that, that it happened. Obviously, it was was the right move. Right. It was. It's been huge for the conference, and. Um, and, uh, you know, so there's, you know, they, they're very happy they did it. But at the time, it was very controversial. It's almost hard to imagine them, the, the league without them at this point. You know what I mean? So Right. I mean, I, I, I was on a station in Penn State yesterday and uh, in the area, and I said, you know, think about it. There's a whole generation of Penn State fans who have known nothing but the Penn State being in the Big Ten. Right. You know, and it's true. It's 30 years now almost. Yeah, I have a 28-year-old you know? brother who's been – they've been in the Big Ten as long as he's been alive. It happened the year before he was born. Right. Um, right. What did you – like, was there anything that jumped out and surprised you when you were researching the book story-wise, maybe about the origin or the early years of the Big Ten, something that made you stop and say, like, wow, yeah. you know, any story? Yeah, you, could... you know, I think the whole early years, I think I knew to the extent – you know, the Big Ten was the first conference – and um, and it wasn't founded to be a sports league. It was founded because the president, seven presidents, met in Chicago at a hotel in Chicago in 1895 to try to get some some order into what had been this wild, wild west of early college sports. I mean, there was all sorts of you know athletes playing eight years at the same school, playing for two or three different schools. Um, 
um, getting paid, obviously not attending the school. And uh, they said, hey, you know, if we're going to have this, it has to have some sort of uh, relationship with academics. And they came up with these 12 rules. And the first rule was this, you know, very novel idea that athletes should actually be students at the school that they're representing. Right. You know? So <laughs> you think about that, but they had to put that in a rule because it didn't exist back then. And uh, that's kind of where the Big Ten started from there to try to, you know, then they said, well, okay, we, we have this association, you know, let's play each other. And, um, but even early on, the presidents didn't even really want any trophies to be awarded for championships or anything like that. They really were trying to, um, make it not, you know, de-emphasize some of the aspect of athletics. And it really kind of foreshadows what happened throughout the 20th century. And even today with this, you know, with eligibility issues and, uh, academic requirements. And, and now we're, you know, we're going back, we're heading into a time where I think athletes are going to start getting paid. I think the pay for play issue is going to be a, a the huge issue in college sports going into the 2020s. So yeah. that was one thing. The other thing that kind of struck me as, as like a, my other wow moment, I did a whole section on race in the big 10 and, um, and it my probably that was probably my biggest wow moment was that the big 10 did not have an African American basketball player until 1948. And when you think about that, they had other huh? African Americans in other sports, um, including um, football and obviously Jesse Owens in basketball. I mean, then track, track you know, yeah. was at Ohio State. Um, it was kind of stunning. I mean, you really, I mean, this is, you know, a lot of these schools recruited, for, you know, had a lot of their students came from urban areas in the Midwest. And um, it wasn't until 1948 when the Indiana president said, you know, to his coach, hey, you know, we got to start a player named Bill Garrett, a high school player, I think he was up by in the Gary area, Gary, Indiana area. And so he, you know, he should be on our team. Right. Yeah. Can and you give some really, perspective? Where it started. What, what year was like the first African-American college basketball player in general? Like how late on the curve? You know, I don't know. You know, sure? I don't, you know, okay. I don't know. Yeah. I, I was mean, just you curious. Know, yeah. You know, Jim Delaney, Jim Delaney played at North Carolina and one of his teammates was in the sixties. And one of his teammates was the great Charlie Scott. And Charlie Scott was the first, african-american player at north carolina and that was in the mid mid to late 60s so i mean okay. you're talking about yeah. you know and you know and you're right and i and I, I think that was a really interesting section because then i also wrote about duffy doherty at michigan state in the 60s had these great teams in part because he recruited this pool of african-american talent in the south hey come up north you know and you know he had as many as 20 he had 20 players he had an african-american quarterback and these great teams, um, which was revolutionary back then. And, you know, these guys, these players from this, in the South, the South wouldn't take, didn't take any African-American players to the late 60s, early 70s. So they, they came up to play. I'm talking about Bubba Smith and uh, all sorts of George Webster, Gene Washington, great players who went on to be great players in the NFL. And, um, Wow. You know, that yeah. was also interesting. So it was kind of, you know, and I think there's still that tension and dynamic that still kind of goes on today. I mean, the Big, the Big Ten has a committee, advisory committee, um, to deal with issues of minorities and inclusion and things like that, because in part because of things that happened in the 70s and during that time. And um, so that part was interesting. I mean, there's a lot of great, you know, I hope there's a lot of great backstories and 
I wrote about the start of Big Ten Network and how that really started, came out because Delaney was very upset at an offer he got from ESPN, thought it was not what he wanted to hear, and he wanted to have an alternative, and he came up with this idea, let's kind of following the model of the Yankee Yes Network, let's do a, right. let's do a network. Let everyone me, thought he was crazy, and uh, you know, obviously, it's a huge financial success, and now everyone has networks. Let me ask you this: We all know that in college sports, like football and basketball, pay the bills, right? Like uh, Ohio State plays whoever on a Saturday in September, and they get a nine hundred thousand dollar check that might pay for most of the other budgets in the athletic department across the board in one game. What's like the third biggest Big Ten sport? The third? You know, I would probably, that's a good question. I mean, women's basketball has following. Um, hockey. Hockey, yeah. Um, you know, it's got to be hockey, I would imagine, Wisconsin, Michigan. Yeah. Notre Dame's in the Big Ten for hockey. Yeah. You know, I mean, people don't really know that. Did you Obviously, tell that Minnesota, story? Did you tell the story of kind of really. the, not really, no. Because that's a <laughs> fascinating really. story, too. I mean, they broke up one of the biggest college hockey um conferences right. ever uh but i do but i do have college hockey uh, represented uh, in the form of two of my iconic coaches are bob johnson at wisconsin and Herb brooks at minnesota and wow. i don't think again you know most people remember her brooks as being the great olympic coach but he was a tremendous you know he won three championships i think in seven or nine years at the national championships at minnesota that's really why he, he got the job coach yeah, all those right. all those kids on that team were college players, you know. Right, right, yeah. and that and he was and he, and he and Bob Johnson were the you know the great coaches of that era. And Bob Johnson went on to be a um, a great uh, coach in the NHL, winning a Stanley Cup in Pittsburgh. So, um, you know, so I write about that. You know, again, it's kind of it's more than football and basketball. Um, when you think about the great athletes in the Big Ten. In the ES, you remember the ESPN did the Sports Century series in the end of the 20th century, and um, they ranked the top 50 athletes of the 20th century, and five of them were from the Big Ten. And it wasn't five in the top 50, it was five in the top 33. You had Jesse Owens, wow. Jack Nicholas, Jesse Owens, Jack Nicholas, Magic Johnson, Red Grange, and Mark Spitz. You think about that. Five of these transcendent athletes, you know, who stand the span generations as far as their story being told. I mean, they're still talking about Red Grange in Illinois. I just did a symposium down there a few weeks ago with the Red Grange Symposium where they talked about Red Grange, and it's almost 100 years since he played down there. And they're going to be talking about Jesse Owens forever and Jack Nicholas forever and Magic Johnson forever and Mark Spitz forever. I mean, anytime there's an Olympics, you know, they're going to talk about Mark Spitz, seven gold medals. So... Um, so it's kind of really kind of, that's another thing that shows the magnitude of the big 10 red, uh, red Grange, the, the best red in the conference. Uh, but second, I got to give to red Berenson, the coach of Michigan hockey for years. And right. Years and and I got a yeah. picture of him in the book. Yeah. Stud. A picture of red in the book. Yeah. Hockey hall of so, famer. Um, yeah. And a great coach at Michigan, a great player for the St. Louis blues. I remember him there. They do have a picture of him in the book. You know, I try to, you know, when you say, you know, I, 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 I try to get as much as I, as I can. I tried, it was, it's not all the news that fit, that's fit to print like a New York times. I mean, I, you know, I didn't get everything in, but I think I hit the high points and, 
And I think there's a lot, and, and I've been telling people that there's a lot on your school and, and every school. And you can kind of read, you know, if you're from Michigan or if you're from Ohio State, kind of see where that you fit in the conference. Michigan, Illinois, all these schools contribute to the history of the Big Ten right. in some form or another. Unless you're um, and Rutgers. Even, and, now, even the new, and now even the new schools. But, you know, <laughs> but you look at... Um, Penn State has got is is this unbelievable. They've become like the you know Iowa was this great wrestling program under Dan Gable, who I write about. But now Penn State has dominated, you know, winning national championships almost every year now in wrestling. So a lot to write about, and um, you know, it was fun. It took it took me, as I said, probably the better part of two years to put it together and coordinate all the photos and work with the designer and get it out. And a lot of help from a lot of people. I have guest columnists in there. Our guest writers. I have Jesse Owens' daughter in there. You have, a, about his, you have a beautiful ongoing relationship. I'm sorry, I, I, I jumped on you. I'm going relationship with Ohio State. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and you have a beautiful essay in there about your family and what the big times meant to your family. I read that last night. I love that. Right, just kind of really pulled me in to know, like, okay, the author. This means more to him than just a book he's writing. Like, his, the big times in the blood of his family. You know, felt like, and I think it's in the blood of a lot of families. They did a campaign that kind of, you know, talked about you know how it spanned the generations, and that a lot of people are. I'm a three generation Illinois family. A lot of people are three or four generations at their school. My mother went there. My wife and I went there. I have a son who went there. You know, so you think about that, and uh, you know, I'm, obviously it goes for like Michigan, Ohio State, and. Um, so that was very personal to me, and it was very personal by the fact that my dad took me to my first game when I was 10. We grew up about 10 minutes away from Northwestern at Dyke Stadium, and you know we went to these games, and he was not a spendthrift, and we, he bought $6 general admission tickets and to sit on the visitor's side, but he wasn't going to sit on the visitor's side, and we walked all the way across <laughs> the stadium and you know took seats in the student section, you know, and the someone who could be on the Northwestern side. I would... I'm sorry, I was reading the story that, about your family, about how your son is a huge Northwestern basketball fan. He decides to go to Texas. Yeah. Then they make the tournament in 2017, and the committee puts yeah, them in go. Texas? Did that happen? Yeah. Did, is, did yeah, I understand was, that right? That he what? No, he was rooting for them. Oh, he, oh okay. They played in Utah. Oh, okay. He, they played in Utah. He was trying to figure out a way to go. But, <laughs> you know, but he couldn't. And, you know, and it, and it was interesting that he, he looked at... He, it was kind of he looked. I was he looked at going to Northwestern, but I think when it came time to to pick a school, he kind of went to the campus and kind of said, "You know, I've been there, kind of done that, um, right?" Because he spent so much time there at Evanston, and and he wanted to kind of. Uh, I think he obviously wanted to get away a little bit. So Texas has been a nice spot. It's been a lot of fun for us to go down there. It's my another one of my favorite schools now. You know, you root for your kids, right? It's been a lot of fun there, I'm sure, except for when they play Oklahoma. It's probably not as fun on those. Although they did beat them, <laughs> they did beat them last year, right? On the, the right. field, they beat them one of the two times. They, they didn't beat them in the Big Twelve Championship game. Uh, let me ask you that as kind of a last thing. Did you write about rivalries and how they maybe split up families? Like, was there any story about a family where dad was Ohio State, and mom was Michigan, and you know, you know you things know, I like didn't that? Get into, I didn't get into that. That, that that per se, obviously, that really probably happens. Obviously, Ohio State, Michigan, right, more so than any other one. But I did write. I have eight pages on the Ohio State Michigan rivalry, pretty much keying off the nineteen sixty nine game where Bo Schembechler faced Woody Hayes for the first time, and Ohio State was number one in the country. And 
like a 15 or maybe 18 point favorite. They had this juggernaut. They'd won like 23 games in a row, won the national championship in 68. Michigan was kind of this up, you know, first year under Bo Schembechler, Woody Hayes' protege, and 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 it's in Ann Arbor, and they beat them 24 to 12. I mean, they beat them pretty handily, and it's considered one of the great upsets of all time. And it really set the stage for this Woody and Bo 10-year war that I still think, um, which was phenomenal, and I still think it defines the conference. I mean, I think it's still the conference from that point on was the is the conference of Woody and Bo, you know? And right. I think, um, when you think about the big 10, people ask you to think about the big 10. I think Woody and Bo are probably two of the things, you, two of the first five things you think of, you know, uh, yeah. just because of their lasting presence on the conference. I think both of them would probably be, are probably rolling over in their graves with the way the two, the last, the recent Ohio state Michigan games have kind of turned into, <laughs> basketball games almost with the scoring, but, um, but they, you know, they, they define the count. I think that game, that's that rivalry, but also that those two guys really defined the conference. And it really started with that 1969 game. And it was fun writing about that and, and how um, Hayes always thought that that was, that was his biggest disappointment that they, that they never, that they, that he didn't win that game. They were at a, they were at a, after they both retired, they were at a, a function together and they were both on the, on the dais and Woody gets up and starts talking about that 69 game. He thought that his 69 team was the greatest team he ever had. And he turns to Bo and he says, damn you, Bo, he'll never win a bigger game. You know, and this was long after that happened. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and so and I thought that was really cool. And, uh, and as someone, you know, who grew up in the Midwest and really loving the Ohio state Michigan rivalry, um, you know, I you know I just knew how much that meant, and so that's kind of that's in the book too. Well, I was looking at Jim Harbaugh on Saturday and thinking, I know he'd have to cross enemy lines to do it, but I wonder if John Cooper's somewhere thinking, "Man, I feel for <laughs> you, Jimmy. Like I feel for you. I know what that feeling's like." Yeah. Well, Harbaugh's only five now. The difference, I think. Well, so here's the difference, though. Yeah, here's the difference. And we're Someone at twelve fifty nine. Just games. so you know, just. And- Okay. okay. Right, we'll, we'll finish it pretty quick. But yeah. so as someone who covered a bunch of those Ohio State Michigan games, Cooper was there. The difference was that Ohio State most of those years had the better team. They were the favorites. And they came in and just laid an egg against right. you know, against against Michigan. I mean they came in undefeated a couple times and, you know, with chances to win the national championship and I remember one game Michigan just I remember one game at it um in Ann Arbor and right before the game, the Ohio state announced that they had given a four year extension to Cooper. And, um, I think Ohio state was un- probably undefeated or, you know, and uh, Michigan just blew them out. And I remember sitting in a restaurant, um, after the game in an Ann Arbor restaurant, some Ohio state fans walked in and the people in the restaurant started yelling four more years. Four <laughs> more years. <laughs> so that difference between that and the difference between that and, in Harbaugh is that Ohio State clearly clearly has better. Been, yeah, yeah, clearly, clearly has been the better better team, and um, and uh, you know, and they clearly, you know, I think this team right now is, is, is as good as any college and any Big Ten team that I've ever seen. Going to the championship game tomorrow, so we'll see. You know, but um, the book the Big Ten champ, but I think. Yeah, no, the book, I just want to make sure we get this in. The book is called This Is Big, uh, and the, the website is Big Ten Book.com. 
Right. Uh, it, that, right now, that's the only place to get the book, so you can find it there, BigTenBook.com. If you're looking for a gift, it's one click for a sports fan. It's your one click away. Um, I think it really is something that sports fans will like and um, really kind of will make an impression on someone. Um, and if, you know, I think a lot of people would like to have it in their library. I hope a lot of people would like to have it in their library, too. Yeah, and just kind of as a technicality, when you go to Big Ten, uh, book.com and you go to buy it you actually buy it from fanatics and i bring that up right. only because fanatics always has great codes coupon codes and things and for example right, they're right constantly having sales yeah so right, right now if you want to save a little money on it i'm not sure what they're charging for it now but 34.99 you know, right now as we talk with the code right, holiday well, that's, that's, yeah 15 and it off. for 49 dollars yeah so, uh, that's a good savings right now yeah so i wanted to mention that real quick and of course you can find ad on twitter uh, are you at sherman report is that what it is on twitter Sherman underscore report. underscore report. Yep. yep. And uh, I thank you so much for everything you've always Thanks, done Steve. for this I podcast. I appreciate it. I'm glad. Uh, I'm glad. I'm thankful for the support. Always great to talk to you. Yeah. And when you and slow down, you. when you slow down, and I've had a chance to read it, let's regroup and let's just do an That'd hour. Be great. On it. You know, let's just and then you can have that for the second wave. You know, um, Valentine's right. Day gifts well, or whatever. Uh, hopefully. Yeah. So, By Father's Day next year. For yeah. Sure. Exactly. So. Let's do that for sure. All right, great. All right. Sounds good. Have Thank fun you. out there. Thank you, Ed. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. I was a little too tall. Could have used a few pounds. Tight pants, points, hollering out. She was a black-haired beauty with big dark eyes And points all her own, sudden way up high I want to thank Ed Sherman for being on the podcast today. Don't forget uh, that Ed's been on several times, and you can find uh, all the interviews we did with Ed in the archives of the sportscasters. Uh, real quick book club update. Uh, first of all, I just want to thank all the authors uh, of books that were a part of the book club for season nine. We had a great season. We had books by a bunch of different people. Jane Levy was back with her book about the babe, and it kind of started there. I guess that was maybe sort of towards the end of last year, uh, the end of season eight, but uh, all kinds of great books this year, and we finish them off with Rob and Ed's books. Uh, I want to thank uh, Greg Prado was on recently with a book. Uh, Albert Chen was on with a book. Um, just a ton. Every year we do a ton. Uh, I love doing them. We had the craziness with the Bob Stoops book this year, uh, which was pretty funny. Uh, like I said, we did the, the Stoops book. My friend, uh, Blake J. Harris, has a book uh, we still have to talk to him about. Uh, because of the way everything's went down, we haven't had a chance to talk to him. Uh, the beautiful Packers, the history of the Packers book by Mark Beach was part of the book club this year. Another great year uh, for the book club. So I just wanted to quickly mention that. Thank all the authors who are a part of it. Uh, and, of course, this season time, the book club will be back uh, with more fantastic reads in the sports and media and all the crazy things that we read here in this book club. All right. With that said. Uh, we are going to take a break, and when we return, we're going to do the last interview of Season 9 with a friend of mine named Rob Mish, a great guy who's out in Vegas. He's got a book out. It's called Sports Betting for Winners, Tips and Tales from the New World of Sports Betting. 
So let's take a break. Let's do the last interview of season nine. Again, I recorded this back in uh, the end of November, early December, I think. And of course, the Saints weren't eliminated yet. I know we talk about uh, my Saints fandom. I don't know if we say anything that will sound dated today or not, but uh, I guess just that quick disclaimer. All right, let's take a break, and we'll be right back with Rob Mish. All right, our next guest today, the last one of Season 9, he loves Steven Strasburg and Marshall Falk. Uh, He's a good friend. He wrote a book about Bryce Harper and his father, called The Last Natural, and he's a good friend of the program, a warm sportscaster's welcome to Rob Mish. What's up, Rob? How you doing, my man? Hey, thanks for the return visit. I appreciate it. Sports Betting for Winners, Tips and Tales from the New World of Sports Betting is the book. Uh, the first book, uh, the book club, The Last Natural, uh, was the one where we met, and then, of course, your book about UCLA. Um, yep. And uh, was there one more we did together, too? Well, um, I think uh, let's see. There was the third one in there would have been on uh, veteran boxing. Boxing, Kenny, yeah. Kenny Adams. Yeah, we did something on boxing. Yeah, and yeah, so this is right. this is number yeah. four. Yeah, yeah. So that's a lot. I think one of the one of the most from any author in the book club. Probably Perlman probably has the most, um, but he pretty much puts out a well, book every year. I mean, that's his full time beyond his full time living. Yeah, guess, yeah, yeah. I, I'll tell you. I'll tell you what's interesting, Steve. Exactly ten years ago. I got laid off by the Las Vegas Sun, and the beauty in that was uh, I'd been laid off before, so I had learned the golden rule that when you get laid off, it's not the end of the world. There's always something good, if not better, right around the corner. Just stick your nose in it, talk to your contacts, and flesh it out. It's always going to be better. So I already had learned that lesson 10 years ago. But if you had told me 10 years ago, hey, buddy, in the next decade, you're going to spit out four books. I would have probably, at the very least, laughed at you. So it's been a very interesting last decade for me, that's for sure. Did The Last Natural come about kind of out of the layoff? Like, did you get laid off and say, all right, well, what am I going to do? And then kind of that project emerges, or is the timing off on that? It, 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 uh, the, in a nutshell, it directly led to it because right. I had a good relationship. I had a very good relationship with the coach of the junior college baseball team on the outskirts of town, College yeah, of Southern that. Nevada. Yeah, I remember that. And, from the book. and it was it, the the oddity that drew me. Now I moved here in October '02, and the the curiosity of the junior college was that it was a wood bat league, as you know. Right. Very few junior mm-hmm. junior colleges or colleges use wood. So in my downtime covering UNLV basketball and writing features for the Las Vegas Sun, I would get over to the junior college as often as I could to give uh, uh, exposure and attention to this very unique program. That got me tight with the coach, Tim Chambers, and that directly led to that first book. Unfortunately, a few weeks ago, Tim Chambers passed away, and it was just... uh, just an incredibly sad uh, ceremony, but kind of a beautiful uh, celebration of his life. He went way, way, way too soon. Yeah, rest in peace. Um, really a great character in that book, for sure. I mean, that's my exposure yeah. to him. But, um, yeah, The the Last Naturals, uh, it's your best book, in my opinion, just because of the, you know, uh, it, it, the topic is the most, that would interest me the most, you know, so I, I've, yeah. I was drawn to it, and I... 
you know, I, I still recommend it to people all the time. Um, awesome, and I know how close you got with Mr. Harper um, through the process <laughs> of that book. Uh, what would you say? What would you? What was your feelings uh, when you're watching the ninth, the ninth inning of the World Series? Uh, what did it go? How many games was it? Did it go seven games? Sure did every yeah, uh, every away every, every away that, team that's, won. That's sure. right. Uh, so the last inning yeah. of Game Seven, you you got to be thinking about Harper, the Harper family, right? I mean, that's got to be on your mind a little bit, unless you had like a ten thousand well, dollars bet on the game or something distracting you. But that, I mean, that's no, got to no, no, no. got it's got to be in your head, right? Like, yes. wow, the yes. year yes. after. Uh, a uh, for sure, and it was on a lot of people's minds, and I was getting a lot of texts and calls about that very topic for sure. Right. Uh, as you know, I went to San Diego State, so yep. my my most of my feelings were just happiness for uh, Strasburg and the success he had and what he did in that World Series. Good that was day amazing. Too. But yeah. you, you, yeah, they were, <laughs> but you, and, and and what and what a what a link too, because they decide to give the farm to Strasburg. They did not. Uh, well, you know what? In all fairness, obviously they did offer Harper, but he was going. He was leaving. He was testing the free agent markets. Right. Uh, that was why he did what he did ten years ago, leaving high school as a sophomore to play at this junior college to get drafted a year before his uh, high school class graduated. The whole, the whole end game for Harper try was to, to create to. his own path, right? And and start start his clock early and to get to that. Uh, unrestricted free agent year and to hit the lottery and that's what he did so right. I and try to hit it that, twice uh, right like because right. of his age he wanted to get it earlier so he could try to hit it twice or at least when that second right. unrestricted time came his value would right. still be you know right exactly right theoretically though because the oddity of that steve which really blew me away is those two people, you know, that organization and Harper, they're linked for 13 years. You know, it's so weird. Such a long contract, and neither one has an out. So, uh, right. you know, I, I thought, and this is just my opinion, it's worth a hill of beans, but I thought the kid stopped gambling on himself because if, let's just say, that the offers from L.A. and San Francisco were real. Let's just say that uh, the Dodgers actually did offer him four years, $160 million. Well, if he takes that, well then, you know, if they're happy with him after four years and he's happy with them, it's it's likely that they could redo the same deal, four years, 160 So in my thinking, the kid could have gotten Philly money from the Dodgers for eight years, and like you said, like you just alluded to, after eight years with the Dodgers, there he is, a free agent again, and he's ready to tap into it. I think he took five years of uh, of his career away from himself because he stopped betting on himself. Right. Now, who am I to say? You know, he ended up with a third of a billion dollars. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, good for him. Yeah, good for him for hitting the lottery. You know, yeah. so um, it's it is interesting. And you're correct. I heard a lot of from a lot of people. Ah, what do you think Harper's doing? And I kept telling them that I think Harper is at home. I think his infant baby is driving him bananas. I don't think he's getting sleep. Uh, and I think when he gets, if there's ever a moment where he gets down, I think he just takes a look at his checkbook. Okay, well, that's interesting because you know you have some insight into him. So let me ask you this. How important yeah. do you think things like Legacy and World Series, because like, we know that that was insanely important to A-Rod, right? Like we know yeah. that, 
despite his two hundred and fifty million that he got from Texas, which was like the first one of these insane contracts. I remember the day he signed right. it, and what it, yeah. I remember listening to the Jim Rome show that day um, in Buffalo, driving around, and just the enormity of that. But we know that um, in two thousand four, A Rob was willing to give money back if he could. Uh, to get to Boston right. to make that trade happen because to him he's such a big baseball fan it got to a point where he had enough money and he was maybe he at that point he knew his business interests were going to make him rich as well this wasn't his only yeah. earning power whatever the case was legacy was very important to him and maybe if we wanted to get deeper maybe that's why he got into steroids whatever point being right. point being we have a guy we know a mega earner like him that was tempted by legacy where do you think harper is on that scale does he care about that stuff at all a little bit is he like a rock yes. what, what do you think yeah for sure steve not not to go off on too much of a tangent no go for to it talk about another 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 sport yeah we got time like um i i immediately thought of mike tyson okay. and here's this young buck this bull just making his way through the heavyweight ranks and making a name for himself as in boxing he might have been. He might not have been the most educated of human beings, but what he was educated on was boxing, boxing and yep. his his place mm-hmm. in it. And he wanted. You talk about legacy, man. That's the first guy I talked to. I, I thought about. And when you mentioned Harper, he impressed me from the moment I first talked to him on the record. And that season in 2010, I made sure he was the last one I talked with because I I didn't want him to think I gave a damn about him. So I was talking to all of his his, uh, his teammates and going in-depth with them, how they got to this place on this team with this star. And it was probably in the second month where I finally talked with Harper. Uh, in fact, it was. It was uh, March Madness, uh, early March. So I'm in the clubhouse with him, and this is when it dawned on me how he knew the grand and great history of baseball. I asked him about being a pioneer, doing what he's doing, and uh, Skip saying nobody's ever done this before. Nobody's ever going to do this again on the cover of Sports Illustrated. This kid's going to be the bomb. Well, I asked him about being a pioneer, and he looked at me and he almost laughed. And he told me that uh, the true pioneers of baseball—that's Jackie Robinson, Frank Robinson, Willie Mays, Larry Doby—and he went on and on. And he said those guys for what they did in their era breaking that barrier those are the pioneers i'm just a kid trying to play baseball he's but but for him to mention larry doby you can you can take a current poll of major leaguers and ask them about larry doby i would say that maybe 20 percent of them know the history and significance of larry doby the first black player in the american league with right. cleveland mm-hmm. and harper knew that harper knows his history he knows his place he knows where he wants to end up in that history. And uh, at this point, I mean, um, where does he stand? I don't know. There's a lot of people kind of who aren't fans of Bryce Harper, that's for sure. He did his money dig. Uh, he made it big. His, he doesn't have, Generations of his family never have to worry about money again. And if that's what all this was about, then God love you. Right. Good for you. Yeah. And, uh, you know then you, you get what's coming. But, uh, um, that, man, we could talk for hours about that. That's an interesting topic because yeah. uh, 
so many have so many opinions. And um, you mentioned Tyson. What a book that is. Got to give props to Ratso yeah. uh, for working on that. That first Tyson book is just nuts. Uh, how great Absolutely. it is. Um, but, yeah, the, you mentioned his his place. And, and one of the things I remember from that book is him just talking about the regret um, when he lost that fight to Douglas because he knew he wasn't prepared for the fight. You know, even though he did right. win it, and the, which uh, that's one thing that drives me nuts about that fight, which is just never talked about. He won that fight in the eighth round. I mean, the ref, yeah. the ref knew he blew it and knew that Tyson won it. Just the kind of nothing you can do about it. I mean, Buster Douglas was down for a century in the eighth round. I, I don't know. Um, oh, absolutely. You know, yeah. you know what's interesting about about you bringing up that specific fight, and I don't mean to directly. Uh, make a link to my current book, but it's it's too salacious not to because yeah, for sure. Jimmy J- Jimmy Vaccaro is a legend in Las Vegas, and in my new book, he occupies an entire chapter because uh, he is just an odds making uh, legend. He's been at so many properties, and when he was at the Mirage for that that Tyson Douglas fight, he was the only bookmaker in town to put odds on that fight. And he had uh, 42 to one odds on, on Buster Douglas. Now the money action was pretty good. Not that it was even, they lost a few bucks on that upset, but he told me that he told me that uh, the money that they lost on booking that fight, they more than made up by uh, publicity and being the only book on the strip to post odds on that fight. So really interesting stuff there. Let me ask you this, because uh, this was this really annoyed me. Like, I'll be full full disclosure here. We were supposed to do this interview twenty four hours, and we're doing it. And I told you it was because I just had nothing left voice wise, really, from, from yeah. the Saints and Forty Nine ers game. I was a little sick, like cold sick, like you know, normal December stuff. Nothing like yeah to cry to mom about or whatever. Um, and, right. and then and then there's that that insane Saints and Forty um, Nine ers game. And one thing I do. After my team loses a game like that, because I've had a lot of a lot of uh, preparation uh, for that to happen since the Saints, <laughs> listen, this, since the Saints won the Super Bowl, okay, in two thousand nine, they have lost four playoff games with a name. Like when you lose a playoff game and they name it, it was like oh boy, right? They lost the Beastquake game, okay. Then they lost the um, Catch Three. Uh, yeah. on the Vernon Davis, Alex Smith disaster in 2011. Uh, then they lost the Minnesota Miracle. Um, and then I guess, I don't know, is there an official name for whatever bullshit happened last year? I'm not sure, but whatever. It could, oh. have, it could have a name. I don't know if there is one, but whatever. So anyway, uh, Sunday. So, so usually what I do is I kind of unplug. You know, I don't watch. I'm to the point where the Saints game takes so much out of me. I don't watch a lot of other football anyways, especially the stuff yes. that comes after them. I'm kind of exhausted yep. and done, and I, I just kind of spend time with my daughter, just do something else, maybe put the Sunday night game right. on the second TV and watch a movie or whatever. Right. Uh, yeah. So I kind of get away from it a lot. Podcast, I just delete them. I don't watch debate, whatever. I've heard a few things, though, about this game and one thing i heard was how the 49ers were sharp the sharp play was the 49ers everyone was on this on the 49ers and how you need to bow to the sharps here's what annoyed me about it though and you can tell me how i'm right or wrong the sharps got that game just as wrong as anybody else 
I mean, they yeah. just got lucky that the 49ers happened to win. The Sharps didn't put money on the 49ers because they thought Jimmy G was going to throw five touchdown passes. Right. And, um, right. you know, and, and, and lead a miracle drive with 53 seconds left and benefit from Mark, Marcus Williams' increased stupidity. Uh, on the national stage for the second time in his three-year career. Uh, they put money right. on him because they thought that their defense was going to beat a quote-unquote aging Drew Brees into oblivion. That's why the sharp money was there, exactly. right? I mean, come on. A- am right. I right or am I wrong? Right. If I'm wrong, set me in my place here. No, I don't disagree with you. Just to give people just a real little nutshell about my career, I've been a sports writer for more than 30 years. I moved here to Vegas in October '02. So I've uh, I've spent 17 years in this city. When I embarked on this book, Sports Betting for Winners, I had lived here exactly 16 years. And uh, the beauty of that book is there's no way I could have attempted it unless, A, I had lived here for that long, and, B, I had three books under my belt because I had an extremely fast turnaround. I had to go from nothing to finished manuscript in exactly four months. Wow. And fortunately, that fortunately, I did know... I knew some great people in town, and I figured and hoped that they would lead me to other key people. And in fact, that's what happened. So I only tell you all this just to give you an idea that, uh, you know, I've been around this town for many years, and even better, I've talked with many experts and veterans who are much, much wiser about this this uh, incredible industry called sports betting than I am. And so to lead to your point, uh, again, I go back to Jimmy Vaccaro. That's the first person I thought of when you asked me this. Uh, he, his big mantra is, with human beings, you never, ever know. You can never, ever know. When you're putting any kind of money on a sporting event, you're taking a chance, and you can never, ever know. And so, when, you, when Steve, when you're talking about pros and Joes and Sharps and Joe Sixpack, right. you can put it all in put it all into a blender and pour it out and dump it out your backyard because you can just about flip a coin and you're going to come up with the winner as often as these people. Yeah. And, and you know, and that's why they, they, their edge is that they play so much and over a long period of time that maybe if they're 52 to 48 versus sharps versus pros, they'll 52, right. you know, with the amount that they bat and the extent they're going to, you know, the Joe who bats three games, that's not enough, man. Listen, here's the the, right. re- the reason I brought it up um, was just because I wanted to ask you. We're kind of all over the place, but whatever. We're just at a bar right now chilling and talking. Um, yeah. I'm right. too out of my mind still to stay focused, unfortunately, I think. Well, and as, and as I told you, <laughs> and which we're going to get into, man, yeah. I, I applaud I applaud your uh, – it, it's not enthusiasm or passion. It's just, uh, you know, you're, you're uh, an awesome fan. Uh, with uh, and it's not about just going to games and it's not about the financial output. That's a that's a different level of fan. But but you have uh, there's an emotional price that you and everybody and even me with the Green Bay Packers. You, you there's a degree of emotional attachment you put out there on the line so many Sundays and uh, you know that's what makes sports. That's what makes it fun and that's the agony of defeat and. Oh my God! Can it be agonizing? You just mentioned uh, four specific New Orleans games that have names on them. Um, to give you some perspective, and I'm sure you know this. You've you've spoken with Steve Russian. Um, 
Those are four games that weren't Super Bowls. Imagine losing four Super Bowls. And I guess we can talk about Buffalo Bills fans also. Yeah, I live that. uh, I live that. I was seeing a front row seat for that. Oh, so you know what that's yeah, about. Yeah, I'm you know a Buffalo boy. Like. I was I mean, uh, in the front uh, row for all four of those games. I mean, I know. Oh, Steve, I, Steve, I can only tell you that you know a degree of torture that most fans do not know. Yeah. Now, I was, in a, I was a Saints fan already at that point. My first year as a Saints yeah. fan was 1987 when I was, you know, six uh, or just turned yeah. seven years old, September of 87. But right. it was an era where my, those years, most of my – I was watching the ten minute ticker for updates on the Saints during Bills yep. games. You know, I don't. A lot of people listening probably like what, but the, they would every ten minutes a little bell would go off and they would run the scores on the bottom of the games. Right, uh, we'd be like Pavlov's dog. Right, yeah, whatever we're doing, you just stop and turn your head. Right, yeah, there was no Sunday ticket uh, <laughs> during the Bills Super Bowl run. So, and everyone, just about everyone around me, the people I love our Bills fans, you know, so I would, you know, I'd go with yeah. my dad to part. I mean, I was in the front row for all of those Super Bowl games and, you know, oh. you know, and, and obviously, especially the first one is the one that really right. cuts. And then people forget the fourth one against Dallas. I think the final score was in the thirties to 17, something like that. Um, but the Bills yeah. were winning at halftime um, of that game. And then, like I remember my mom calling we have uh, we had family in Arizona like calling her aunt in Arizona at halftime saying like wow do you think we could finally do it this time like is this the one like you know um oh. and then then Thurman oh. Thomas you know fumbled the on the first um play from scrimmage of the second half and it got returned I think for a touchdown and the lead was gone and the energy was gone and the Dallas crushed them from there on but yeah, I mean, oh. those the first and the fourth one, I think, were the toughest. The second and the third one, those are just such blowouts. And, you know, to be fair to them, that Redskins team um, it's one of the best NFL teams of all time. I know yeah. that um, I talk to um, Aaron Schatz from Football Outsiders every year, and that team, like, yeah. in their data is, like, a top five team of all time, so... Oh man! Yeah, and then you got your running back. That's, you can't find his helmet. You know, time. that's right, right. <laughs> that's just—I mean—that's pure, unadulterated anguish. What, what? Um, you know, that—that's true. The lifeblood of fans. You know, does your team win? Does your team loss? Well, we're what what we might discuss a little bit about the sports betting is now. Can you imagine that extra little? next level of anguish if no, you have money on it I one can't. way or the other and Rob, the, the more i the more the more i live here the more i i do not bet i could never bet a saints game rob no oh. i could never do that i can't bet a saints Ooh. game i can't bet a saints future you know i can barely yeah. play fantasy football because of the saints the thing about fantasy football just very quickly i don't spend any time on it but the only reason i can play it is because i love drafts so I do a draft yeah. in August. I set my lineup every week, and I don't check it then till Monday. You know, like it's out of my uh-huh. mind for the most. I never know who my opponent has or anything like because I, right. I just can't. I can't. The Saints and the Sabers, kind of my two top teams, but the Saints is a huge gap on even the Sabers. Um, yeah. It's part of my identity, right? Like people who know me, if you said, "Tell me something about him." One of the first things they're going to say is the Saints. Like, if not first, probably second. If not that, definitely third. 
You know, it's part of my well, identity. You, and, it's part of my soul. It's like, and I'm not proud and, of and that. People, people, uh, we can get into that because, um, you know, people can follow you on Twitter and, you know, um, I, I don't, I don't say this to be mean or anything, but, uh, people can, you know, you, people know how, how you're running on a certain day by your Twitter account, whether, right. whether the saints won or lost and your, your feelings about that. And, uh, and again, I just think in the biggest, the bigger picture, um, I applaud that because I don't have a lot of that left. Granted, I've been in the professional side of the business and basically, um, you know, if I'm writing or if I'm covering a game, I don't really give a damn who wins or who loses. I have a deadline and I have to beat that deadline. So years and decades of that, it, that will wean out of you that passion. And so when I, when I recognize that in others, I applaud that because a lot of that is gone for me. Well, one thing, and we were talking about this a little bit before we started, but one thing I said to my wife after the game last year is I said, you know, I don't know how much longer I can do this. One thing I said to my wife last year after the the Rams game is I said, I just don't know how much of this I have left in me. And I said to you a second ago about how, you know, I'm not necessarily proud of it. You get to a point like I'm a 38, 39 year old guy. You know, I have a wife. I have a daughter. We have a house. You know, sometimes I get embarrassed. (laughs) I get embarrassed a little bit about how much it means to me. You know, like on an opening day where I'm up all night, I'm saying to myself, like, why are you doing this to yourself? This is a this yeah. is a game. This is football. Everything I've been through with my health, you know, I say to myself like, yeah. why, 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 why are you here? But here's the honest truth: is it's because it's not anything I'm doing on purpose. It's part. It's in my soul. It is. It's just who I am, you know. And when yeah. I and when I say to someone like, because my always my thing is I don't care that much about the players that much like. I'm a fan of the right. Saints. You know, if a player comes, goes too bad. But then when you have a player like Drew Brees, he kind of finds a way to transcend that in a way where it's like, yeah, For sure. it is about him. Like, you know, he is just as important as the team. And and so I've said a few times, like, as he's winding down his career, like, you know, maybe when he's done, I'm done. You know, like, maybe that's because I could yeah. never not watch a Saints-Drew Brees game. Like, I could never. Right turn my back I would feel and this is silly I know but I feel like I'd be turning my back on him as much as the team if I ever tried to disconnect myself so but I know that that's just well, Steve, that's Steve, that's, that's, I know that's, it's never going to happen that's that's it's really unique I'm sorry to interrupt you but no, go ahead. but it's that's that's not just a matter of a quarterback in a football team what what his relationship is with that city right. forget the team Breeze is special to that city, and that is that is so rare. What he has done for that city, especially at its lowest points, oh, my God, that, that transcends sports. And I think when you have someone like that to root for, you just uh, – there's no end to it. And so you, you put your – you know, your heart and soul is on the line, and, you know, for good reason because he deserves it. And I don't believe – um, I, I just think that's so unique because I think for the most part, an NFL player doesn't give a damn what city he's playing in. He just wants that check and he looks, he gets that check and that's what his life is about. And you know what? Good for him. But if, if the true fan really knew what makes the average player tick, I think they'd be so turned off. I was told a few years ago that, uh, 
in any given NFL Sunday in any stadium when when the game is over and that team is flying home, the visitor is flying home, if you were just on that plane as a commercial patron, you would not know whether that team just won or lost. Yeah, that doesn't surprise and me. So, yeah, that doesn't surprise me. And so, yeah, it's, 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 you know, they divorced themselves from it. It's about the check, and it's uh, and not to be raw and crude about it, but that's the raw and crude nature of the game. And, and I, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. I'm, I'm from Milwaukee, born and bred with the Packers, and I have four stock certificates framed right here in my office. And that stuff, man, it gets in your blood, and uh, it can take over. Yeah, and like something like what you were just saying, the Saints have some players on the team who are very braggadocious. I mean, Mike Thomas's yeah. Twitter name is Can't Guard Mike, right? And look, I love Mike Thomas. And by the way, for he's not that kind of guy, actually. You know, like um, yeah. despite the Twitter name, he's a really, really good kid. Um, and he's yeah. played just as bit as hard. He got paid this year, right? And he's been better. Mm-hmm. You know, he's been better. But like Marshawn Lattimore, okay, he's a guy I love. I always tell this kind of joke that when the Saints drafted him, you know, me and my brother were watching the draft, and I was doing fist pumps that we somehow got Marshawn Lattimore, something I didn't dream would happen when I woke up that day. And my joke has always been, yeah. like, if I would have known how good he was, I would have done backflips, forget fist pumps. Um, <laughs> but, like, something he does is that on his Instagram, he always likes to, like, I don't know, as part, I don't know the, the terminology. I'm not that social media literate. But, um, like, yeah. on his story, he repost people mentioning him or highlighting him. And I thought on Sunday, the way that defense played, there's no way I'm going to hear from Lattimore or Cam Jordan or any of these guys tonight, right? right. Of course I did. You know, like I couldn't believe yeah. it, but of course there they were. You know, again, it's just like, man, wow, you guys are just unbelievable sometimes. Um, yeah. The, let's get away from me for a second. Sports betting for winners. We mentioned tips and tales from the new world of sports betting. It's kind of the second book this year that we've had um, on the idea of a new world of sports betting. Now, the other book was focused on daily fantasy sports for the most part. It was by Albert Chen. Um, I can't yeah. remember the exact name of it right this second, but um, his He's focus. Excellent. Yeah. yeah, and his focused more on daily and. Less on like about the betting and more about the business of how those companies, their ups and downs, whatever. But my point is that two books on the idea of new world of sports betting. Tell me a little bit about the new world of sports betting, like how it's changed um, compared to when you first arrived in Vegas. Like what are kind of the basics uh, for people who haven't looked at the book or aren't as up to date, like what are kind of the basics of what the new world of sports betting is like versus when in 2002 you arrived into the world of sports betting in Vegas uh, then? Man, it, it it is night and day, and it is changing by the day. It is so fluid and so fast. Um, my big MO in doing the book was uh, – to talk to as many of the best and the brightest people I could on both sides of the counter 
to get their insights on uh, what has worked for them, what hasn't worked, what potholes and hurdles to avoid. And I just, I didn't want to hit people over the head with numbers and equations and algorithms and quants. That stuff is out there and the math models are out there and they can just bore you to death. I wanted to tell just human stories through real human beings and the real ups and downs of, uh, and the dangers of getting into this business. It is dangerous. Everybody, you know, it's, it's, it's becoming legalized very quickly over states in the country and people really want to hook you in and, and lure you in. And there's a lot of danger to that as, as people might know and, and people might not know. I just think when you're putting money down on the counter, that had better be money that you are not going to miss. I think that is rule number one, Mm -hmm. but to give you an idea of what's going on and what the future holds, about uh, maybe 13 months ago, Steve, um, there was uh, something called a BetCast, and it was aired over a Vegas public access station on the television, and it had to do with a lower-level Vegas soccer team in the uh, USL. So uh, it, it was done through VSIN Studios. VSIN is the all-glass studio at the South Point, that Brent Musburger helms. He's the kind of the lead voice and lead face of the Vegas Stats and Information Network. It's a satellite station, has everything to do with uh, sports betting. Uh, everything, every game is talked to about in terms of sports betting. And so, so this betcast was done through the VSIN studios. There was two commentators. And they flew in a British journalist who was very keen on soccer and sports betting. So these three people, for the duration of a soccer match, they did a television broadcast. And the only M.O. was the constantly shifting odds of that game on William Hill, which they were flashing on the screen. So what was going on on the pitch wasn't the big attraction. It was the odds in relation to that match. And all three commentators were talking about the fluctuating odds, what to bet on now, what looks good in 10 minutes, look for this because then that will happen and then your three-to-one odds are going to look great. Uh, I I went deep on this with Nigel Seeley. He's the British journal they flew over. He actually does a spot on every Friday morning on VEASAN, and he's very smart on soccer. You can win some money listening to him. Uh, Once I saw that on the public access channel, I got in my car, and I raced over to the South Point, and I I knew I'd find him after the match, and I found him at a bar, and we talked for 45 minutes. And he said, and this is in the book, he said the future of sports in sports betting in this country is betcasts. Sooner than later, you're going to see the NFL BetCasts on Sunday, and it's going to be captivating, and it's just going to be uh, something so unreal. The, the NFL largely exists these days because of betting. That's the popularity angle through fantasy sports. That's one angle. But the betting, uh, putting money on something, on, on a, a players, on a team, that's the real draw. And Nigel said, told me that, when that happens, when the NFL goes to betcasts, it's just going to be a whole new world. It's going to it's going to explode. So that's one thing that's coming down the pike, Steve. How shocked were you 
when the NHL made the first move to bring a team to Vegas. Is that something like you felt was coming? Like I'm sure when you got there in 2002, the idea of a pro sports team in Vegas was still insanity, right? Um, yes. And the, N- the NHL threw that first rock in that area. Now, was that a, a huge shock? Was that something you expected based on the trends? And where does that move stand in the kind of the ripples of creating this, you know, new world of sports betting? Yeah, that, that was that was bold. That was, um, you know, um, I, I always thought with some other people in town that the first pro team in town is going to reap just incredible dividends. Um, the, the first in theory, you know, you're the first one to take the giant step. And uh, I tell you, there is a, a fervor about that team in this city it's it's the love affair is off the charts steve you just and and not just because they went to the stanley cup their first season bill foley owns the team and i mean he had to put down a half a billion dollars just to get the team so uh there was a lot at stake and he is seen as one of the patron saints of vegas for doing so uh because he did that that kind of opened the doors to the NFL. And right. the, the most surprising thing is that the NFL now is in Las Vegas. That that new dome, watching that thing get constructed about uh, four or five miles away from where I am right now, it's been just magnificent watching that thing go up. It's just And, and every time I look at it, Steve, you, you are spot on because I look at that dome and I think, you got to be kidding me. I still, I still pinch myself. Not that I'm a Raider fan, but just that the NFL – has uh, set a foundation in this city because, as you know, it wasn't that long ago when the NFL barred Vegas from uh, even advertising during its Super Bowl broadcasts. They wanted nothing to do with this city and gambling, right. absolutely nothing. Yeah. Yet they would have off-season retreats, and you know their administrative staffs would come here and party for a week. And so the hypocrisy with the NFL was just off the charts, unbelievable. It's even more unbelievable that the NFL is here. That next year we're going to have the Las Vegas Raiders. Well, the joke that is uh, no. I'm sorry. The joke for yeah. all the years was like how. You know, during the games, Al Michaels would have to be like on a garbage time touchdown, and be like, "Well, that really excited some people in the world." You know, like it was always this like real taboo. Even Jimmy the Greek, way back in the early before his demise, um, of course, was you know um, kind of hinting around with putting these random scores. Like, you know, I think that right. uh, the, the Saints are going to beat the Forty ers 25 to 9 and you were like well, why the hell did you right. that score it's like well it's a nod to the line right um let me ask you this about the nfl so they've had the first player now suspended um not ever but like again in this and i'm just right. using this term because it's from the title of your book in this new world of sports betting right they've had it they've right. kind of fired the first bullet on suspending a player um who basically seems really naive to the world i mean his defense is exactly. basically like what you can't do that like why not <laughs> you know um but right how important and intense and like what do you think the policing of this just because we're in this area talking about the teams coming to vegas like do you think right. do you expect a fallout in terms of scandal and things like that is what the leagues feared about vegas and why they kept it at arm's arm's length are they going to regret sort of embracing it? Because I mean, they're only doing this for money, right? Everything's about money. Right. Um, are Absolutely. they going to are they going to regret that at all? Do you think, or is it just going to be? 
what it's always been for years and years and years anyway. Yeah, I think I think life continues as yeah. usual. I think uh, I think what we're seeing with that player that, like you said, that was a true one-off. Yeah, that was that someone just... who just didn't understand. If you're in Vegas, well, you can make bets, and it's legal to make bets. So he's just thinking, you know, he was covered by the big umbrella. But, right. Uh, um, I thought it was legal. No, now. no, you know. When, yeah. What do you mean? Yeah. 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 When 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 you when you're an agent of a of a of a professional sports team, yeah, you got to be a little smarter than that. So. Um, I think I think it was a one-off. I think that um, you know you, you you're touching on a great area because as the as other states look into padding their budgets, and obviously these states have budget deficits, they're looking to make that up quickly, and they think they can do it through sports betting revenue. They have no clue that the uh, the margin of success making sports bets. Uh, booking these bets is so razor slim. It's just such a narrow window to make a profit. You're you're finding that uh, a lot of these politicos and these these people in these jurisdictions they are not doing their homework by any stretch. So few of them visit Vegas just to try to figure out what's going on behind the curtain, how they operate, what the margins are, how they police themselves. If they would just spend a few days in Vegas. They would understand what they're getting into, and and they would produce uh, a business back in their home states that is much more amenable to the to the patron, to the customer. It would be better for their bottom line, but so few do it. Uh, I believe only agents from New Jersey and Indiana have really come into Vegas and really dug deep into the issues, and it's it's no coincidence that. The operations in New Jersey and Indiana are arguably the very best of all the new brave worlds that are trying to embark on this business. Uh, you're seeing some some really asinine movements done. Uh, your own state, Cuomo, trying to uh, uh, talk about how apps and online betting, how that's unconstitutional. Well, that's probably headed to the courts because one guy isn't going to make that statement and it's not going to stick from one person. But there are so many stupid things going on that I contend that the offshore books and uh, Uncle Nate around the corner behind the warehouse, those two entities are not about to go away because new states that are uh, offering sports betting, they're doing it in such a bad way that uh, your own bookie and the offshores are always they're always going to be around because right. they're going to give you a better deal, a better price, and uh, they're going to cater to you better than your own state is. You know, the, your own state is just out to gouge you. No, no right. state, um, no state, kind of shows that worse than Illinois. Of course, Illinois for decades, yeah, the political system there is not too screwed up, but uh, it's no coincidence that they're just going to botch this royally and the bookie around the corner and the offshores are going to just froth at the mouth and continue to take your business yeah in new york you have to make bets in person and so right. in buffalo we have a few indian indian casinos here and the, right. they're going to finally open a sports book but like if you're in new york city let's say you're you're at the you're in the lincoln tunnel you know on the yeah. new york side you have to find uh you have to go into a building and do this on the Jersey side. There's this app and I guess it's great there. People, people I know from Jersey love the way 
I think DraftKings or FanDuel, one of those is kind of in charge of most of it. And I guess they have a great app and you can do a lot of in-game stuff. And I think maybe that's a state where they're getting it right. I'm not sure what you've heard about that, but just the... Definitely, definitely. New New Jersey and Indiana, they're getting it right and they're reaping the benefits. And, uh, you know, one little side note is that a lot of... There's there's been a few uh, outlets that are saying, ah, Jersey now the kingpin of... Of sports betting, it uh, you know for certain months more money they'll make more money than Vegas. I, I don't see it that way. It's not competition between uh, Nevada and New Jersey. I just think that well, you know, 18 months ago, PASPA got quashed, the federal mandate that barred states from deciding their own sports betting futures. Well, 18 months ago, that got uh, eviscerated, and so that allowed states to make their own decision. New Jersey was on the top of it, and so I just think that uh, this is a business that finally was brought out of the shadows. And now that it's on the up and up, you're seeing all the fervor in Jersey and surrounding states, people coming into Jersey, and that's the business. And now there's a spotlight on it, and they're doing very well. The state is capitalizing. It's not a matter of Nevada versus New Jersey. It's just a matter of, well, finally this has been legalized, and it's allowed, and it's in the spotlight. Look at the great business Jersey is doing it. They're doing it right. Hopefully new states that are coming along pondering this, they look at Jersey and use that as a model. The sportscasters are here with our friend Rob Mish. The book is called Sports Betting for Winners, Tips and Tales from the New World of Sports Betting. And it's a great Christmas present, not just for someone who loves gambling. Uh, It's great for them because there's so many, as he said, uh, tips and tales for how to cash in on these new laws. Uh, But it's also great just for a person who's fascinated by the idea of wagering. I don't do much wagering myself. I pick and choose my spots occasionally. I have one grand triumphant win story, if you want to hear it. Um, Yeah. Okay, so the 2006 NFL season, so the 2007 Super Bowl, uh, was in the rain um, in Miami and was the Bears versus the uh, Colts. So I was. I think I know where you're going with this, but go ahead. I was looking at a stack of props. Uh, I was at a a party where the guy hosting it was a big gambler and had the you know a bookie on the dial and the offshore on the computer, and it was just the right place where I felt like I had a place to bet. And I'm looking through everything, and I see first touchdown. And I'm like, that's an interesting one. I'm looking through the the lines. And there's like six or seven players mentioned. And then there's like the field. It's not like there's odds for every player, but there's a good amount. Maybe six or so a team. Whatever. There's a bunch of guys. I'm looking. And I see Devin Hester. And I'm like, you know what's interesting about him? Is he might get the ball (laughs) first in the game. Right? Like if they get the the first kickoff, he's going to maybe get the ball in his hands first. And the odds were good. They were like... 18-ish to 1, 20. You know, he's a right. long shot, but I just said, well, look, it, I'm going to put, I think I had 220s in my pocket. I'm going to hand him these 220s and put them on Hester uh, just because I like the idea that he might get the ball in his hand first. And it's funny because I'm kind of telling him this logic, and he, he put, I think, something on it because he's like, I like that idea. And then we're kind of yep. kind of watching it play out like, oh, the they won the toss. Oh, they're taking the ball. Um, okay, we got what we wanted, right? He's going to get the ball first. You know, and then it was yep. just a fun moment at the party because, you know, like, it's not going to be a touchback. He's going to get to return it. And, 
he's at the five. Yeah. You know, so that that's like my one glorious uh, sports betting moment. That's awesome, yeah, Steve. That- I, I had that, I had that also. You could have gotten you could have gotten. I believe you could have gotten fifty to one if you bet on Hester to run the opening kickoff back for a touchdown. I wasn't that bold. I think I had either 20 to 1 or 25 to 1 that he would score on a kickoff return at some point during the game. During the game, so, yeah. Uh, I, I also think that that might have been one of my last years in uh, Fantasy League, and I had Hester on my team. So, yeah, that was kind of a given. <laughs> Do you have a story like that, an anecdote where you just crushed one? Uh, nothing comes off the top of my head except uh, there was, you know, the misses always, always right, yeah, that's uh, what everyone remembers, right? come up, you know, right. like, like, uh, I, I know that, uh, there was a game a couple weeks ago. Uh, I'm sure you can remember this better than I, but, uh, doggone it. There was a game, um, uh, someone scored the first touchdown of a Monday night game and, uh, the, the, the quarterback was uh, a runner. I'm not sure if it was Watson or Jackson, but uh, I think the return was really healthy. And I looked at it and looked at it again. And then, as usual, I get distracted and move on and right, watch right. the game. And and then, of course, that happens. So uh, a lot of uh, a lot of near misses. But uh, I, uh, I I tend to keep my money in my pocket more often than not. For yeah, sure. I've made millions of dollars on bets I didn't make. You know, like, yeah. <laughs> like like things I look at during the week, I'm like, oh, that'd be a good bet to make. I should do that. Or, you know, right. both my brothers well, I, are really into betting right now. And I'm like, you should do this one. Yeah. And they're always like, why don't you do it? And I'm like, nah. Yeah, yeah you know. And then it's, well, I, I found something about 10 days ago that was really interesting, and I bet on it. Um, I do a weekly college hoops column for Gaming Today. Uh, that's a, a tabloid magazine type publication that's in every sports book in the country uh it comes out every wednesday so i do a college hoops column called the gym rat and uh my first column a couple months ago was about memphis when when the final four ended in march uh as soon as the next odds were posted on the next final four memphis what came out at 80 to 1 and within a few weeks that got that down to uh 12 to 1 at the westgate superbook and it was even single digits at other books. And so people were really high on Memphis. Uh, and then we saw that, uh, their big kid got suspended yeah, yeah. recently. And then the, those odds went from about 12 to one, 15 to one, they went back up. And so in my course of going to a couple books in town, I do every other day. Uh, I found 40 to one on Memphis at the South point when in fact, uh, they were at probably 15 to 1, 20 to 1, 20 to 25 to 1 elsewhere. I saw Memphis at 40 to 1, and I put a couple bucks on them uh, to win it all. Not that I think they're going to win it all, but here's another little layer toward uh, the brave new world of sports betting. I have a ticket on Memphis to win it at 40 to 1. I do not think they're going to win it, but what I do hope is when they get the big kit back, they go on a big winning streak. And maybe sometime in uh, late January, early February, those odds go down to single digits. Thereby, I can post this ticket right. on. Uh, uh, oh shoot! What's the news? What's the site that you can peddle tickets on? Prop Swap. Uh, I'm not sure if you heard of that, but uh, Prop Swap. You can put uh, game tickets and future tickets on there. 
And then if you're in a jurisdiction that has accepted PropSwap as an entity, California was just added to their role just a few weeks ago. Uh, you can get on PropSwap and you can buy my ticket at, at a price that is better than you could get at the book. And it would ensure me of making a profit. So prop swap is another new angle to just the brave new world of, you know, making money on a ticket before that ticket comes to fruition. So it's actually a commodity. And so that's my thinking there is that money's going to come in on Memphis when they start rolling. And I'm going to be able to maybe double or triple my money when that ticket becomes attractive to someone else out in that market. Right. Yeah, that's really cool. I had a follower, Twitter follower, who was in Vegas, and he sent me the futures on the NCAA tournament for hockey. And he's like, is anyone here a good bet? And I was looking at it, and I remember at the time Harvard was had really uh, just – it was 30 to 1, actually. I, I remember that because we followed yeah. it you know, the rest of the year then. And um, I said, I just like that team. And I think the reason they were – they hadn't – their Ivy League, they start later. And they just hadn't started yeah. playing yet, you know, so they didn't really show what they were. And my brother was playing in the Ivy League at the time, and I kind of knew that they were bringing right. back a lot. And they got it all the way to the Frozen Four. He didn't win the bet, but he got to a point where he could profit from having the bet, you know. Right. Um, but, um, yeah, again, the book well, is – when, when, when I see the odds for the NHL Frozen Four – Man, I'm gonna I'm gonna zip you a copy, and we're we're gonna get together. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was one where I just I just liked, you know, I liked what they had. Is there an advantage? Can can a better get an advantage by knowing more about a niche sport like college hockey? Um, is there is, absolutely? Yeah, there is, right? Yeah, absolutely. Oh yeah, uh, there's there's so much going on. Um, there's so many teams, so many global sports going on that they just, they can't keep track of it all. If there's a, if there's a niche, like say Australian rules football, there's money to be made there because you're going to know more than the guy, the guy behind the counter. Right. Which is Um, rare. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so with NCAA hoops, there's 353 division one teams. And so there's no way they can put in, uh, like in the winter, when you see a Saturday and you see 150 college hoops games, there is no way that the guy behind the counter can post an accurate line on every single one of those games. So the art is sifting that out and really finding value in something. And I'll tell you what, it takes a lot of guts, Steve. It not only takes a good bankroll to really make this a, a worthwhile endeavor, but right. man, it takes, it takes <laughs> guts. Right. It does, man, because you got to, you know, you develop your certain set of principles. And let's just say after three days of betting college hoops, you get your, your rear end handed to you. Right. Well, you did that. You, you have a system, you have principles, and it just happened to go south. You've got to stick to what you believe in. And not just mm-hmm. the course of three days, but over the course of three weeks and three months. Right. The people here who do it right, who I really, really respect. They don't give a damn about what happens today or tomorrow or this week. They care about the long haul, which is 12 months. And right. after 12 months, they want to show up. They want to show a profit. It, you just got to stick to it and you better have a bankroll and you better not deviate outside that bankroll. If you have a bankroll, you better stick to that one unit, maybe two units. And you know, you, you just better stick to your guns and, um, you have got to 
stay, uh, boy, you, you don't want to touch the third rail. You, you want to be disciplined. You want to be ultra disciplined. Otherwise, if you have a vice in Vegas, man, it's going to bite you in the ass before you know it. So you just got to be so careful. It takes a lot of balls to put, you know, $300 yeah. on Colgate on a Saturday in basketball, but it takes even more to put $300 on him every Saturday in basketball, right? Um, yes, yes, <laughs> and especially doing that 10 or 15 times a day, man, it's just, it's something to behold. Once last fall for the book, I sat in a VIP booth at the Westgate with uh, four professional betters, and I was so nervous, Steve. The one thing I went into that situation uh, adamant about was I'm just going to keep my mouth shut because I don't want my uh, my amateurism to come through. You know, I didn't right. want to yeah. say anything out of turn. I, I wanted to just listen to these guys and watch what they do, say very little, speak only when spoken to. And it was it was fascinating. That's in the book. And uh Man, it's just, it's another level. It's another world. It's really, really cool to be a part of. Something else that's really cool to be a part of, and it doesn't, it's nothing about the new world. It's always been this way, but you got to at least one time spend a Sunday watching your football in a Vegas sports book, I think. You know, no question. Yes. Yeah. Maybe not when your team is like playing the biggest game of their season, but like just on a, a, just a regular Sunday to watch the emotion in that room, the highs, the lows, the swings are, I mean, there's something, something crazy to, you got to do that at least. It is. It is. And I heard NCAA Thursday, Friday, the the first two days of the NCAA tournament are almost better. I heard that that gets nuts. It is. Yeah. It is. You know, the Super Bowl is its own entity. It's a two-week build-up. The lines are, you know, once you get within 48 hours of uh, kickoff, the lines are long. And watching a single Super Bowl in a sports book, that's really fun. Mm-hmm. But you're right. Uh, the first couple days of the NCAA basketball tournament, there's so many games going on, and it's just constant action. It's a lot of fun. And with an NFL Sunday, um, you you have got to stay on your toes. Uh, there's an incident in the book where I'm eating. I'm I'm standing next to a guy at the Westgate, and the uh, the in-game odds uh, flashed at a commercial. It was my what was it? It was uh, New England at Chicago. The Bears had just scored. The in-game numbers flashed. The Patriots were an underdog price, and man, you don't ever see new england as an underdog price anywhere anytime and i looked at that and i usually keep keep my thoughts to myself but i looked at that and i just said wow and the guy next to me said what's wow and i said new england right now is a plus price that's ridiculous they're trailing but you know they're going to win the game he goes holy shit what are you talking about and i and i pointed out to him the in-game odds how how it changes every commercial and you got two minutes to make a bet and that one right there looked really good and he ran to the <laughs> to the counter. I love that. And he put some money down on New England. Well, you're not going to believe this, Steve. They come out and they come out of the commercial, and New England runs the kickoff back for a touchdown. Wow, Patterson was it and, Cordell Patterson? And, what's that? Was it Cordell Patterson? Is it wasn't he running them back for them it, it, last it, year? It, it might have been, but yeah. I don't remember. Yeah, whoever. The, the cool right. thing is, the cool thing is, the guy that I had just met, he ran to a pizza place and he came back with four slices of pepperoni pizza and a couple Cokes. He gave me a Coke and he gave me two slices of this expensive pizza. And he goes, <laughs> buddy, you just made me, he goes, buddy, you just made me a lot of money. So, <laughs> 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 that, 
that was a neat story. There's a bunch of neat stories, though. You know, I don't necessarily gamble a lot because I know the dangers, and I've, I've never really had a lot of money. So to have an excess bankroll that you can devote only to betting, that's really never been in my lifestyle. I'll take a shot once in a while with a 20 or 220s or yeah, something. Yeah, that's but, how uh, I pick my but, spots. But, but to be a part of the environment and the atmosphere and the highs and the lows, it's for a writer – it's off the charts. It's it's the best canvas you could ever hope for. So I'm really grateful. Yeah, you don't have to have a single bat played on yep. a Sunday to have fun at a Vegas sports book. Just watching those games, they're incredible. Absolutely. The book is called right. Sports Betting for Winners: Tips and Tales from the New World of Sports Betting by our friend Rob Mish. It's available wherever you buy books. Uh, he's on Twitter. You can find him. It's at Rob and then M I E C H. I only get it right every time because he told me. The first time we talked, that it rhymes with wish, you know, but it has a right. rhyme. So I just, I've never forgotten that. It's Rob Mish, like wish. That's awesome. Yeah, um, and you can, of course, find him on Twitter, and um, there's lots of interesting uh, gambling anecdotes and things like that on his Twitter. And he also, one thing I love about your feed is I like getting the updates on the stadium. Uh, you'll post pictures when you yep. drive by and things like that, and it's kind of cool uh, yep. watching the evolution of the stadium. Uh, Rob, I hope we did it justice. I know we were a little bit all over the place. Um, but, again, the book's called Sports Betting for Winners, and um, it's the perfect size for a stocking. I'll say that. But um, It is, yeah. Steve, thanks a lot, Steve. Yeah, I, I always appreciate talking to you, and the invitation is always welcome. So anything thanks, else sir. you want to plug? Everything's going great, man. I just hope the Saints come through for you, brother. Thanks, buddy. We'll talk soon. Okay, thanks. Bye-bye. thank rob mish and ed sherman for being on the podcast today i love having those guys on don't forget you can find that interview this episode and all episodes of the sportscasters on our soundcloud page it's soundcloud.com slash sports dash casters you can find us on twitter or at sports dash casters there email me the sportscasters at gmail.com and of course if you can Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. We haven't had a review in over a year, so if you feel like it, a five-star review would be great. Don't forget to find my friend Peter Winston. Uh, he's greetings from Allentown. Twitter is at GF Allentown Pod. The guy's been through the ringer lately. Knee injury, gallbladder, growth on the face. Been through it all as a trooper. He does a great show about wrestling, and his current one is one of my all-time favorites. It looks at an episode of Tuesday Night Titans uh, from 1985. Also, Adrian Dater, good friend of mine, coloradohockeynow.com, at Dater on Twitter, at COLHockeyNow. Uh, check Adrian out there. He's also killing it with his sports betting. And uh, Place to Be Nation, of course, on Twitter, at Place Number Two, the word B Nation, website, Place to Be Nation.com. I'll be on their show in February. Looking forward to that. Uh, it's been a great year. Uh, had some great interviews. Had some great fun on the show. I want to thank our fans. 
people who listen, fans is kind of a weird word for me to say. Look, at I just appreciate anyone who takes any time listening to this. People like Bill McGrath, Fred Cass, uh, John Leonard, uh, Billy Jones, all the people who reach out and uh, thank me. I thank you so much uh, for listening. All right. With all that said, there's one more piece of business uh, for 2019, even though we're recording it in 2020. And uh, that piece of business is something I'm going to call uh, a picture of a picture. And it's about Christmas and my daughter and uh, something I started her first Christmas. Now, if you listen to the show, you probably know that I named my daughter uh, after my grandmother. I named her Paula. Paula was my grandmother's name. Uh, my grandmother came to the United States as a 12-year-old girl uh, in the... Uh, early 1940s, just before World War II had started. And my great-grandmother had already been a citizen of the United States in her life, so she was able to come before my grandmother was allowed. Uh, And eventually, when it was time, she sent for her children, my grandmother being the oldest. And my grandmother, at 12 years old, had to hold her four-year-old sister by the hand and uh, take her onto the boat in Italy. And hold her until they arrived at shore at Ellis Island. Which to me is one of the bravest things I've ever heard. I couldn't imagine doing that at 12. And my grandmother lived a hard life really. Uh, She raised three kids. My grandfather wasn't great. She worked really hard for everything she had. She was a devoted mother. Uh, But my grandfather made things tough. And she got Alzheimer's disease young. And she passed away in 1995. And of course, I love my grandmother. I miss my grandmother. And it was my dream to someday, if I had a daughter, to name them Paula after her. And luckily for me, I married a woman who understood how much it meant to me. And loved the idea. And understood that any other name we would have come up with would have just been a name we liked Uh, but this name Paula was something different and it meant something different and that's why we named her that well obviously since my grandmother died and lived in an era before cell phones and selfies and uh, in a time where if you took a picture you had to like take it to a store and get it developed there just isn't as many as We're used to. I don't have a lot of pictures. I have enough, but I don't have a lot. Well, there's this one I have that I love. And it's a picture of my grandmother, and she looks like she's, you know, looks like it's probably taken in my lifetime, sometime in the 80s. And she's standing by herself next to a little Christmas tree. You know the kind that grandmas get when they downsize? They don't want that big tree anymore. They kind of get the little one. Everyone's grandma has that tree, and they got this story about the other trees, just too much work and too much hassle. So they got a little one. Well, she's standing next to the little one. And I'm actually looking at it. I can see it across the room. And she's got a Christmas sweater on and pants. And she looks happy and healthy. And it's her in the tree. And I love this picture. And when my daughter was getting ready for her first Christmas, I thought it would be a great idea to take a picture of her holding this picture near our Christmas tree. You know, and it would be a picture of a picture. Uh, Paula holding Paula by the Christmas tree, um, near our Christmas tree. 
And I did it the first year, and I, I posted it on social media as sort of my uh, my family's, like, you know, Merry Christmas greeting, you know, Merry Christmas to my family. You know, here's this picture of Paula, uh, with Paula. And then I did it the second year. And um, then this time I posted not only the first one uh, or the second picture, but also a picture of the first two to kind of show her progress from one Christmas to the next. And then I did it the third year. And I also posted a picture of all three pictures. Uh, so this was her fourth Christmas this year. Uh, and I took the picture again. Now, what was different this time is that she really understood what we were doing. You know, over the last year or two, I've talked to Paula about Grandma Paula. You know, she knows that she's with the angels now. And she knows that we named her Paula after someone who was important to Daddy and important to Grandma Lois and important to Aunt Lisa and Uncle Paul. You know, someone who means something to people in our family. She knows it's important. She knows her name's important. You know, and she'll say things to me like, oh, I miss Grandma Paula. Grandma Paula's with the angels. You know, she'll say these things to me and they make my heart melt. And this picture has always been really important to me. Uh, and I love taking this picture every year. I look forward to taking this picture every year. I look forward to posting this picture every year. Because, it, first of all, it's a symbol of growth, right? It shows my daughter what she was like her first, second, third, fourth Christmas. And I envisioned this tradition going on for years and years. And someday she'll be able to look back and say, this is what I look like on all these Christmases. And the only thing that will be the same, because the tree changes, the ornaments change, her dress changes, her hair changes, her appearance changes. But one thing that doesn't change is the picture that's in the picture. The picture of Paula with standing next to her downsized tree with the smile. That picture stays the same and it's in all these pictures. Paula holding it. You know, every Christmas it's a reminder of how far she's come. Every year it's a reminder of who she is, why we named her that. You know, and I named her that because I hoped that in some way she would be able to uh, grow up with some of the qualities my grandmother had, that she could be brave like her and determined like her and sweet like her and loved like she was. You know, I want for my Paula some of the things that Grandma Paula represented. You know, and as it, she died in 1995, so, I mean, that's getting close to 30 years ago. So what's nice about that is sort of the legend of who she was can grow and grow and grow. And the time that she was sick gets less and less important. And the time that she lived and what it means and what it was gets bigger and bigger. Her journey across the ocean from Italy to the United States uh, to make me and my family possible, the journey becomes bigger, the distance becomes bigger, the bravery becomes bigger. And it didn't even need to be, but it is. And I love that. I love, I love the Paula that I tell my daughter about more than almost anything in the world. You know, I love to just, when she wants me to tell her a story, I love to say, okay, let me tell you about this one time that dad got to go with grandma Paula to her company picnic. You know, and someday I'll have to tell her some of the sad stories too. Like someday I'll have to tell her one time grandma Paula was supposed to see beaches, 
Uh, but she came home crying because by mistake she went to see the hunt for Red October. That day's out there. But it certainly won't be on Christmas. Christmas will always be about Paula taking a picture with this picture that's very special to me. Standing in front of the tree. Paula, go stand in front of our tree. Hold this picture of Grandma next to her tree. Smile. And then I'll post it. Her fifth, her sixth, her seventh year. Long after I'm gone, if anything ever happens to me, make sure you call Tammy if you're listening to this. Tell her he wants to make sure that picture goes on. Right? I'm having surgery on Friday. If they lose me on the table, someone please tell my wife next year to make sure she takes that picture. You know, I think I have to write a will just so I can make sure that's in it. And I'm being light there, I suppose, because this, I guess, could be considered a heavy topic. You know, but it's from the bottom of my heart. Every time I look at that picture, you know, I just, you know, when I see Paula, I see the greatest thing I'm ever going to do. Right? Like the best of me, I hope, is her. I hope she's going to take what's great about me and make it better. I hope my shortcomings are never going to be hers. I hope she's never going to have Crohn's disease, never have surgery. I hope she's just going to be the best of me and the best of her mother. And she's going to grow into this beautiful, smart, intelligent woman who's brave and strong and independent and fierce and loved just like my grandmother was. And every time I look at that picture, I see that. I see a glimpse of that. You know, and that's what I want my legacy to be for sure is leaving behind this beautiful, strong Paula, just like the one that I was lucky enough to be born. You know, I was lucky enough to be born as her grandson. You know, it's really one of the great honors of my life. You know, I love to tell people, yeah, you know, I'm Ed's son or, you know, I am uh, I'm Lois's son. You know, I like to tell people, yeah, I was Ed Bennett's grandson. I'm Marie Bennett's grandson. I like to tell people I'm Anthony Day's brother and Greg Day's brother. I'm proud of those things. And I'm very, very proud, you know, to be Paula Favada's, Paula Biaco's grandson. And now I'm really proud more than anything right now to be Tammy's husband, to be Paula's dad. And every year when I take that picture of a picture with my daughter and my grandmother... It makes my heart melt. And I look at it hundreds of times between the day I take that one and the day I take the next one. And I love looking at them together and seeing how much my daughter's grown. It means the world to me. Happy New Year, everybody.
himself a dream.